If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, so let's get Go on to Go into Red Flag. <laughs> and your time in the US as well. And the time in the US. Well, I mean, you know, I've done very little time in the US apart from uh, military exercises, although I've had a couple of family holidays since. Um, the first Red Flag I got involved in, or exercise Red Flag, sort of came out of um, the, uh, the need to be able to train in a realistic environment. And, uh, and the Americans came up with this sort of post-Vietnam War. You know, it's uh, one, of, one of the many things that you know just like the top gun school you know came out and uh, actually uh, you know started to provide that sort of training for the americans and then eventually the americans you know started inviting other nations along and particularly post uh, gulf war 1 when it was very obvious that actually the americans had to work with all of the uh, you know, all of the other nations assets as well um, then quite clearly all those assets need to train together mm. and that is the whole aim of Red Flag. So Red Flag exercises uh, operate out of uh, Nellis Air Force Base. There are other flag exercises as well uh, and there's, there's other things like Copper Flag, Green Flag. Green Flag exercises from memory I never did one are to do with uh, electronic uh, warfare. Uh, copper Flag is something else but um, you know so, so, so there are there are specific aims, but the 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 red flag exercises basically encompass this, and they use the ranges uh, that are north of Nellis. Um, in fact, they're north of Area Fifty, Area yeah. Fifty One as well, um, which is one of the challenges not to stray into Area Fifty One in the middle of uh, one of these big battles. Yeah. So every every uh, red flag period is normally two weeks. So you've got the same crews. Uh, there for the two weeks, and the whole yeah. idea is to build a pay, build up experience. So it's starting from basics, and it's you know quite often you know shows what works, what doesn't, with the idea that uh, you know leaders can uh, package together things where tactics actually work. So I did two red flags. Should have been three. Um, the first red flag we went out there, we did red air. So we went out there to supplement their aggressor squadron. Mm. Um, you know, opposing the blue forces, doing all the practice. So for us, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a lot of fun with not an awful lot of work put into it because, you know, we're flying sort of four, four ships, six ships to supplement the F-16 uh, aggressors that are there permanently at Nellis Air Force Base to provide that role. And you're under their direction, so you're simulating a, uh, you know, a particular threat, which at the time, back in the 90s, it was very much the former Soviet threat, you know, MiG-21s, MiG-23s, MiG-29s, obviously not in our case, because we couldn't do the turning, but that's <laughs> what the F-16s were there for. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, Red, red Air is, is a lot of good fun, and you're out in Nellis, and you're out in Las Vegas, of course, for those who don't know that Nellis is right on the northern corner yeah. of uh, Las Vegas it is. So it's a fabulous place to go to. It's a fabulous place to fly. 
Um, so that was my first experience of Red Flag and the, the Nellis experience. We were then supposed to go out in 1998, but uh, as happens with uh, red flags, every now and again the Americans decide that they're going to put in their super secret uh, assets. Um, and uh, so they will make a particular um, period of red flag uh, a no foreign, which means that if you plan to go out there, then you're a bit stuck because you can't go out to Nellis. But the aeroplanes, so all the British, all the UK assets, so there was a, an E3. Um, that had gone out there from uh, from Waddington. Uh, there were the the F3s that were out there, um, and there were GR1s that were out there doing the exercise as well. Um, they they looked for something else to do. I think the GR1s went elsewhere uh, from us, but what we ended up doing was going down to the very south into Arizona, in fact, to Davis Monthan Air Base, um, and doing an exercise there with the AWACS. Now this was the first period we just trained. On with Link 16 Jateds at the time. Uh, we were the second wing to do it because Coningsby had brought the Link 16 into service um, and uh, we were supposed to be exercising this at Red Flag. So it was decided to carry this on and we ended up operating out of Davis Monthan Air Base for a couple of weeks. Uh, and initially, you know, we, we did the local orientation flights because flying in the States is different, different terminology. Um, with air traffic control, you know, getting used to all that sort of stuff. And of course, when they have weather out there, it's big weather, uh, yeah. as, a, as opposed to the weather we tend to get in, in Europe and the UK. Um, but after a few initial uh, flights where we were doing some stuff, Davis Monthan Air Base, uh, certainly at the time, I think it still is, is the biggest US Air Force uh, A-10 base uh, that they have. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we did some work against A-10s, uh, working in this big, big training area, military training area that's right down bordering the Me- Mexican airspace. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, the big warning, don't cross the border. And you go, well, <laughs> what are they going to chase us with? Because <laughs> I, I, I think the Mexican Air Force at the time had Mustangs, something oh, like that. Yeah. So they're not going to catch me if we do. But, you know, don't stray across the Mexican yeah. border. So that's, that's where you are. Um, and uh, we built up the flying. So we ended up with a period of a few days where the, uh, the, the, the main American um, combined um, air wing from Mountain Home came down with F-15Cs, F-15Es and their own tanker and AWACS aircraft. Nice. Um, and they came and worked with us for a few days. We did uh, a few days with the US Navy, with some uh, US Navy Hornets that flew across from oh, wow. somewhere in California. Uh, and we did some absolutely amazing flying. So much so that a lot of us came back and went, actually, that was better than the last red flag we did. Oh, really? And of course, it was better than the red flag that we did because we'd been red air. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we hadn't got as much out of that training as really we wanted to. You want, when you go to red flag, you want to be blue air because... That's what it's all about. It's all right. about being part of that part of that composite air package. Um, so, yeah, Davis Monthan, Arizona was awesome, and it's a great place to go because uh, Tucson, Arizona, is a great place. Uh, Phoenix is a couple of hours up the road, um, and uh, if you take a drive for about two hours down to the southeast, almost to the Mexican border, there's Tombstone, mm. which of course is the gunfight at the OK Corral, which, as a tourist, it's a brilliant place to go because you've got Boot Hill Cemetery and Big Nose Kate's Bar. And, you know, it is, they've, it's, it's a tourist place, but it's a genuine town, you know. Right. So if you're fans of Westerns, you've got to go to, go, got to, go to the home of the, the gunfight at the OK Corral. 
So anyway, that was uh, that was that exercise. Great stuff. Um, and then two years later, the last red flag I did, which was in uh, early 2000, we went out there as Blue Air. And how did that differ compared to your first time then? Massive, massive. And of course, you know, the, the combined air operations with the Americans, we were already doing anyway. You know, in 2000, it was the year after we'd started operating in Saudi Arabia on Op Southern Watch. And actually the whole thing, you know, getting the whole package airborne into the starting area before you start the exercise was mm. just like we were doing out of, out of right. Prince Sultan Air Base. You know, the tankers launch and then the fighters launch and you all go and refuel before you start the, uh, the, the, the vol period and then you go in and you, you do the exercise. Mm. And, uh, and we were using this specifically, we had a couple of guys who were working up to be mission commanders um, and uh, and these you know we we you know these guys were leading fairly large you know groups of fighters in all of this mm. and the very I remember the very final exercise um, I'm not going to go into the the tactical details because it it would take too long uh, but as as anybody um, as any any mud mover will know. It's a lot easier to attack a target if you can separate all the bombers out and you've got to do that mm. to avoid you know, people being taken out by the, f- the frag from, from air-to-ground weapons being dropped. Um, as an air-to-air person, every air-to-air person knows that a long strung-out line of, of, of ground attack aircraft is the most impossible thing to defend because you know, what you need to do, if you think about it, if you go out in town and you want to blunder through a, a bunch of people and you want to protect an individual, what you do is you get them in a small group, you surround them, and you go through as fast as you can, and you get them out the other side. And air-to-air tactics, you know, in a similar environment is exactly what you want to do. And the, uh, the leader of this particular exercise, he decided that rather than having all his assets stringing out over a number of minutes, uh, that everybody would cross the start line exactly at the same time in a big wall. Right. And I just remember it. I remember sitting there. It was an absolute, a beautiful day, as it quite as it mostly is in that part of the world. You know, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and it was so clear. And they had twelve F fifteen Cs sitting up in the contrails, wow. on purpose, right. <laughs> sitting up in the contrails above us. And then we had F sixteen CJs underneath there. We had other F sixteens in. We had, I think, we had eight aircraft in the formation, all in a big wall across the thing and then we just had all the bombing assets and the idea was if anybody was targeted they just went defensive but with with just all of these assets the red air couldn't chase the people they were targeting yeah Uh, and you know success success you know is shown by the fact that within two minutes i think we'd killed all red air Wow, two minutes. Two minutes. Crikey. And of course, the, the way that Red Air, Red Air worked, it depended on, on how they did it, but Red Air used to have to um, go to like a sin bin for a few minutes. Oh, yeah. And then they could regenerate. Like a game, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, big, big, because obviously, you know, you, you're trying to get the training. Yeah. But because we killed out all Red Air in about two minutes, they all had to go to the sin bin. And by the time they were regenerating, all the bombers had got in and got out of the target. And I always remember... The, the I just remember this view, just sitting there with the guy in my back seat who was on his on his check, and we're just looking at all of this these assets around us. We're going, this is amazing. I yeah. wish I wish you could get a f- photo of this, 
but you know a photo wouldn't have done it done it justice mm. and uh, when Mig One, who's the leader of the aggressors, stood up to debrief. Of course, he did. He's got no idea what your tactics are, so they've just got to, um, they've just got to fly their tactics and deal with what they see. And of course, he said, "Well, we could see all this mess on our radar, but we couldn't work it out at all." Right. Um, and he said, and it was very, very intimidating seeing those those contrails coming towards us. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so that bit was on purpose, yes. Because you never sit, you know, tactically, you never sit in contrails unless it's going to be a benefit to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so, but yeah, so 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 red flag. I mean, we we came back from that, and everybody was buzzing because you know it was a tactic that worked. You know, it's brilliant. You know, but then you know you then go back out and operate somewhere like Saudi Arabia, and you know you launch it. You know, planning these things and launching these packages exactly as you do in red flag. And of course, going back to what I said about the whole aim of red flag, that's the point. Yeah, exactly. It's training how you want to fight. So it works. So, so, so it works, and it's, it's a really great asset. I'm sure over the last 23 years, red flag has developed massively. And of course, there are new weapon systems, you know, typhoons out there now mm-hmm. with, with AMRAM. Uh, I don't know whether F3, I'm sure F3 must have gone out there with AMRAM at some stage, which would have been, you know, very different to my experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't talk about that. I can only Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what I saw. But yeah, really, really beneficial training uh, for everybody. So I want to talk about the F3 at Red Flag. How did the other nations view it? Did they think it was like an essential threat as such? Or was it, "Eh, well, yeah, it's not going to do very well? I... I think people are quite often polite. You know, the I, I mean, I, I I always used to taxi out in uh, in in uh, Peace Sab especially. You know, going out on missions and sit next to the F-15s on the arming points, and I was always envious. I always wanted to go and fly F-15. You know, to me, back in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, the F-15C, you know, was the quintessential air superiority aeroplane. Yes. It really was. And I would be very surprised to find any anybody who would deny that. You know, it really did the job absolutely fantastically. Amazing airframe. And the view out of it was just, you know, you just used to sit these guys, see these guys sitting up there, you know, with the cockpit sides down here, yeah. you know, with this, this fantastic view. Um, so how were we viewed... A lot of the Americans didn't really know the aeroplane and understand it. You know, Tornado to them was a was a ground attack aircraft. Right. So you'd come along. If they'd worked with you, they knew what your capability was. They knew that we were really well trained. They knew that we worked our backsides off to get the best out of the aeroplane. You know, but uh, at the end of the day, it was still, you know, an F3. If you could execute your tactics really well and you were smart, you could get success mm. but it would have been nice to have had that f-15 yeah it would have been nice to have had that f-15 and to be able to do the job like they did so how did the f-3 fare against you know like when you were going it was uh, blue uh, i'm guessing it was f-16s f-15s as red Air. did you have any good success there um yes you did i mean you've got to bear in mind the 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 aim of the aggressor squadrons is not to be an f-16 it's like mig-29 it's yeah. to be whatever the threat is that they're they're simulating so, you know, yeah, it might be MiG-29, it might be SU-27, 
um, might be MiG-21. You know, the, the, the threat is whatever they brief the threat that they're going to fly right. that particular day. You know, so going back to when we flew, we flew Red Air, they would brief us specifically, right, this is, this is what we need you to do. You know, we don't want you doing this particular tactic. We want you to operate in this way. So it's, it's a very canned thing. I mean, you know, I talk, talk to friends who have done the aggressor role uh, in the, both the, the US Navy and the uh, US Air Force. And it is a really, really specifically trained role. You know, they, they go out and get special training to actually do that, you know, fly that, that particular role as red air. Mm. You know, whereas, you know, in the UK on squadrons, you know, yes, you know, you might go off and do a 2v2 and two of you simulated, you know, MiG-23, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Um, but it's not your speciality for them being red air is a speciality, you know, so, so yeah, you know, f flying, flying against them, flying specific tactics and flying former Soviet type tactics. Yes, you could be, you know, you could be uh, quite successful against them. Um, but of course, if they, if they got in to shoot you unsighted, yeah, <laughs> you got shot unsighted, yeah. but in the same way you could get in amongst them and shoot them unsighted. You know, if, if you can't see the person you're trying to fight, you're probably going to lose. Of course, yeah. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what aeroplane you're in. Yeah. You know, and, and that is a really, really important thing. Yeah. You know, in you know, to understand in that role, if you can, you know, and and that was what uh, you know within the F3 we used to try and execute. We used to try and execute tactics that, when at a certain point, we needed to be sneaky, because we couldn't get in there and turn and burn with them. We had to be sneaky. Yeah. So we would try all sorts of um, uh, devious tactics to uh, to try and get get unseen into a visual visual arena. Yeah. You know, and if you did, that was great. Absolutely. The biggest difficulty in in the red flag environment is actually um, you know being able to identify who's who. Right. Because you know you all start off blue air would start off to the east east side. Um, and I can't remember the name of the pass or the, the, the line that you, you pass and red air start here. So when you've got all blue air here and you're heading towards red air that are over there, anything on your radar is the enemy. Mm. Once you've hit that first merge and uh -huh. first airplanes have merged, it is really, really difficult to, uh, you know, to be able to identify who's who. So you, you're almost going f or, or you are going quite often from a beyond visual range scenario to now you've actually got to visually ID people. Mm. And that uh, applies just as equally to Hank in his F F-15 than mm. it does to us in our F-3. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've got to get in there and, and visually, uh, visually identify them, mm -hmm. which, which has risk as well. Of course. But of course, it's bringing everybody together. And in fact, that very last trip, you know, we, we did get a kill against somebody. Um, I think it was a regenerated aircraft in the midst of one of these merges um, where you know we we recognize this guy coming in my backseater had him radar contact locked him up and you know we're trying to get a, a declaration from the AWACS on him and uh, the controller on the AWACS was actually a really good mate of mine and in the end, because we're heading towards this bloke and he's about eight miles away, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, we're going to die if we're not careful here. Um, and in the end, I hit the, hit the transmit switch and I called out the controller's name to get his attention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Matt Grinner Declare 
and I called called the position on the bloke, wow. and he just came back and he went hostile, <laughs> and I took the shot, and we, we killed this guy out. So I think it was one of the only regenerating red air got that was coming back in, chasing everybody out of the area. Wow. And we got this guy. But, it, you know, if, if I hadn't have got that declaration, I would have been at the merge with him. Yeah. He'd probably be in trouble. Yeah, of course. Or would have just had to, you know, blow through, hoping that he wasn't going to turn with us. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, there's risk in everything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and, and and that that's that's the game when you're coming into visual tactics. Absolutely. I mean, really hard work, great fun. Yeah. I just absolutely love it. <laughs> I yeah. absolutely love it. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but you probably have many memorable stories from Red Flag, if you can share it, maybe a couple with our viewers. But there's one story I've heard a couple of times, and it amazes me. It was with the B1B guys, and they were like, oh, we need an escort. And they were asking the F3 guys. Okay. Uh, like, uh, they were like, uh, can you keep up with us? And be like, yeah, because yeah. you didn't expect it. Have you got any great stories like that for us, Grinnell? Um, I don't. I don't have. I didn't have any experience with B one. Um, the B one never took part in uh, either of the two uh, flags that I did. Um, though I, that that is most likely a very very credible story because yes, you know that was one of the advantages that we had over the F fifteen, in that we could go faster than them at low level mm-hmm. uh, and the F sixteen. You know, because you've you've got a lot of drag on the on those aircraft at at, uh, at that height. Whereas, of course, actually, the F three was a good pointy aeroplane at low level, and it could go very very fast at low level. Mm. So yeah, you you would be able to keep up with the B one. Um, I suppose I I th- I think it was the the one where we were doing red air, where they had B fifty twos in, and I remember being being vectored across to you know low low level inbound, <laughs> low level inbound. And we're heading down behind this uh, this mountain peak. There's a there's a range of mountain peaks in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the range. Can't remember what they're called. Um, and uh, as we're heading towards this, this B fifty two came round the corner at two fifty feet. Whoa. Going, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big aeroplane. I think we shot it anyway. But uh, yeah. but it does make you wonder how many missiles you would actually have to fire. Yeah. At a B fifty two to down it, you know, would what would one aim nine work? Yeah, it's a bit you know, with a proximity it. fuse and a bit of a blast frag warhead, you know, <laughs> or would it just cause a little bit of shrapnel damage to it? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. Mm. So, uh, so that that is that's that's one particular uh, one particular story I remember off there. Um, the one I, the one I just told you about the the the, the merge or the the, the last mission. And this uh, this tactic, which actually the leader called "Rage on, Rage off," <laughs> for big because those are his action his action points. Yeah. You know, and he had one line which was "Rage on," one one action line which was "Rage off." There was there was a lot of things in there, you know, tied in with that. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I do remember that specifically uh, and that particular engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but other 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 stuff tied in with uh, with red flag. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, actually, because uh, you know the, the the missions were so very very busy, um, and uh, you know we were usually blessed with with pretty good weather uh, on them. I know looking th- looking through my logbook, uh, you know, in one of them had a had a couple of uh, uh, exercise aborts due to weather, so uh, I'm guessing that was probably the the, the first one right. that I did when we were doing doing uh, red air. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, you know, and and because I remember piecing back into uh, into Nellis in some fairly poor weather, trying to get uh, trying to get uh, 
you know identified on the on the radar because right. of course the air traffic controllers have then got you know upwards of a hundred airplanes to get back a nightmare which which you know when the weather's poor you know and fighters generally don't aren't blessed with masses of fuel mm. you know so by the time you're coming back from a trip you probably don't have a lot of excessive uh, excessive fuel mm. so certainly not what I'm used to having in my airliner nowadays so yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah so to wrap up what was a social life like over that that must have been pretty incredible because yeah it was um i mean you know but the one thing i would say is the air force would never put you up in a casino because they weren't allowed to I've heard uh, stories about f3 guys there and there well it's yeah <laughs> It, well, not, not, you know, it, it, the, the Air Force wouldn't put anybody up in, in casinos, which is a shame because, of course, the vast majority of uh, hotels are casinos. So you tended to be in sort of poorer, poorer hotels or motels in, in uh, sort of dodgy parts of the, uh, of the town. But having said that, yeah, the social life was really good. You had to, you had to look after yourself. So the social life tended to be obviously had nothing to do when you're flying. You know, so, uh, you know, if you weren't flying the next day, yep, you could go into town. But right. to be quite honest, you know, the, on a red flag exercise, you have two waves. So, you know, so it's either um, a night red flag where they'll have maybe an afternoon wave and a, and, a, and a night wave, or they'll have two day waves. Right. So you're either flying on, on one, one wave or the other. And the way that we used to do it was you, you'd maybe do the morning wave uh, one week, and then you'd switch around and you'd do the afternoon wave the following week. Because the, the planning cycle, obviously, you're not just walking and getting into an airplane and going flying. You've got to do all the planning and then the briefing. Uh, and it's a very, very long process. So you're looking at um, an overall, you know, somebody, somebody is allocated the mission lead. Um, and then they, they get all the formation leaders together and they talk about how they're going to do it. And then you go away and you make your own plan and draw your own maps and so on, certainly for the ground attack guys. Um, and we just go away and drink coffee and just have a general map, obviously, <laughs> yeah. as air-to-air -air guys. Yep. But we needed to know where they were going, roughly, so we could protect them. Um, and then you get back for a mass brief and then you go and have your formation brief. Then you go fly. So you're looking at a really, really big leading time. Yeah. So if you're on the morning wave then you were um, planning the previous afternoon. Um, mm. And then you were doing the, the, the briefing in the morning, because you've got to do the briefing on the day. But it, you could be in at half past five, six o'clock in the morning, mm. flying at 9.30, 10 in the morning. I can't remember what the, the timeline was exactly. You'd be airborne for maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours. So the, the whole mission thing, from getting everybody airborne to get everybody back, would maybe be about two and a half hours. Then you've got a debrief. So, of course, you go and have your quick debrief as a unit, and then you maybe get together with all the air-to-air -air people, and you have an air-to-air -air debrief, and then you go to the big mission debrief. So it, it ain't over when you've landed. You've still got to do that bit as well. So you can see that if you're on the morning wave, you know by the time you've finished debriefing, it's now mid-afternoon, and then you're going to planning for tomorrow. The people who are on the afternoon wave probably do the, the will do the big stuff. They'll right. come in in the morning anyway, but a little bit later than you than the morning wave do, and they'll do their the the, the main you know, mission planning and then the briefing and, and roll in, you know, uh, because they'll be finished their debrief in the evenings. So there's you know socially during that, you're just busy. 
so you get to the weekend and, 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 and then you're shattered but it's party time and you've got two evenings two days to party um, before you're back into the, the routine again for the rest of it so and then of course there's the end of the exercise where you're now coming home <laughs> so then it's yeah. party time yeah. so the party time tends to happen on the weekends you know everything's too serious to I mean obviously yeah. you've got to go out and eat um, and you, you do tend to go out and eat you know, but it's generally across, you know, go, go to somewhere that you can like get Taco some Taco Bell across the road. Ta- yeah, whatever you like, Taco Bell. The, la- the last, last one I did was opposite to Hard Rock Cafe. Perfect. So that, that, was, that was a regular haunt for breakfast. Yeah. You know, so, and of course, the big, big thing, the big thing on one of these is ordering without questions. If you've, anybody who's been to the States knows, will know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, you see it on any movie. You know, when you go in and order something, you've got to get the order in where the waitress doesn't ask you a single question. So, you know, I want this with this and a side order of this. I want the toast done like this. I want butter. I want da 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 da. And I don't want it. And I want dressing, particular dressing on my salad. And if she can go away without without asking you any questions about anything else. And, and that is a great competition because it is really, really difficult <laughs> like to do in the States. Like that as well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So. Yeah, brilliant stuff. So one last question. Yeah. Um, so when you were um, in that kind of social environment and let's say you went to Vegas, yeah. could you say, were you allowed to say you're an RAF pilot or did you have to keep that shtum? Or can you not say? But uh, you d- did go out and advertise it. No, but someone said, what, what's what you're doing? What's a Brit doing here? Like, uh, what, what did you say? What? For a bit of fun, you made up a few things. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll, uh, we'll end up there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so how long did you spend over there, like, when, on a red flag uh, exercise? Well, the red flag was usually two weeks. So you'd, you'd travel, uh, and uh, obviously you'd, you'd start off on a... Uh, on a it, the flying was Monday to Friday, so you, you would almost certainly arrive a few days earlier, so it would be towards the end of the previous week, uh, from what I remember. And then obviously you had to go, and to go in and take over all the equipment from the previous unit. Um, if you were the first unit there, you'd be taking out the aeroplanes as well, so that would be a lot longer. And if you were the last unit, you'd bring them back. Mm. Uh, I only ever did that once, um, and that was the Arizona exercises, Blazing Saddles in 1998, uh, where we brought the aeroplanes home. Um, and, uh, and actually, that was great fun, because we uh, tanked the aeroplanes. The idea was we, we tanked them from Davis Monthan all the way to the east coast of the States. We went to Dover Air Base, Delaware, mm. uh, which is a C-5 base. Um, and then the idea was that we would then do the transatlantic bit. So you come across the Atlantic, which for an airliner, of course, is nothing. For a little aeroplane with two people sitting on ejection seats uh, with the potential to end up in the, in the water <laughs> is, is, is a much, much bigger thing. Um, and so the idea was we were gonna do Dover, Delaware, and then we were going to go across the Atlantic to Lages in the Azores mm. uh, and then come home from Lages. Um, and actually what happened, we had a couple of aeroplanes that had defects that needed fixing. Mm. Um, and so I was nominated, uh, one of the three crews, to stay behind. And, um, and back in those days, the, all the transatlantic crossings, obviously it would be tanking, but we used to have a Nimrod that used to do search and rescue yes. cover. Um, so... I, th- I think the plan was originally that it would be three waves of aircraft going across 
because um, I think we're taking 12 aeroplanes back, so it would be three waves of, of four aircraft, uh, each with a tanker, and the Nimrod would get airborne ahead of the first wave, and they would sort of loiter mid-Atlantic and wait for the last people to go past, and then they'd follow them into larges. Well, the problem that we had was that aeroplanes broken, we couldn't go, so they left one wave behind. Um, and but they needed the tankers. They needed to take the tankers mm -hmm. across with the first two waves. Um, so uh, we were going to be stuck for a few days. And I remember waving waving off eight aeroplanes. In fact, I think we waved off nine aeroplanes, and there were there were three three left behind. And uh, the guy, for, the um, RAF guy, liaison guy from the U.S. Embassy in Washington, came across, waved these car keys in front of us, and went. Um, I've, we booked you um, a hotel in Washington, D.C. Didn't think you'd want to hang around in Dover, Delaware. <laughs> and it's not a place to hang around in. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so we, I think we had a couple of days in Washington, nice. cur cur courtesy, of, uh, courtesy of the embassy, before the Nimrod could come back with a tanker to take us across to Largers. Not bad, is it? <laughs> which, was, which was quite a good deal. So, yeah, there, was, uh, yeah, there, were, there were three aircraft, um, you know, six of us, so we had two cars. We ended up uh, in Washington for a couple of days, and we had a really nice time. Um, and to answer the question on that particular one, because I can remember this one, you know, do you say you're RAF pilots? No, we were um, we were um, dual uh, sellers. <laughs> because just as we left Tucson, there was a big dual convention going on. As in like rubies and as, as as in as in sellers, you know, oh. um, you know, jewel sellers coming in from all over the place. Oh, you know, right, right, you right. Know, yeah. Jewels, uh, diamonds, and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So uh, we decided that that was going to be our cover story <laughs> when we got to Washington, you know. And if anybody checked, you know, well, we just come from Tucson. Yeah. You know, we're on our way back to the UK. You know, if anybody checked, they could go, well, it's true, there's a dual conference going on. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that was the thing. And yeah. then, then we uh, took the aeroplanes across to Largest, had, had a night in Largest, which was one of the finest meals I've ever had in a hotel as well. Um, and then, then back to the UK. So uh, I think by the time we got back to the UK, it was sort of well through week four at this stage. So I've been, yeah. been away for quite a while. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, so I mean, you know, you, you'd normally be away, you know, for maybe three weeks on an exercise like that if you're taking the travelling time on either end. Brilliant stuff. Well, Grinnell, thanks very much for coming back on the show. My pleasure.